Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm Sarah Wildman, FP's Deputy Editor for Print. You're listening to a special version of ER today. I'm going to be speaking to the journalist Wahini Vara, who's written an amazing piece for us in April's print edition. But before I get into that, you might want to listen to this. So I used to be a fan of Merkel. I used to think she was terrific, a big leader, a great leader. I think what she did to Germany is a disgrace. That was, of course, now President Trump, but then candidate Trump on the campaign trail in November 2016. He was criticizing German Chancellor Angela Merkel for her open-door policy on asylum seekers. Eventually, about one million refugees, many of them, if not most of them, Syrians, would arrive in Germany after the crisis began in 2015. Those refugees would change the landscape of German politics. Now, that's an interesting way to dive into Wahini Vara's piece. Her reporting is about one man, a Syrian refugee she calls Staif Haddad. His name was changed for safety reasons. Haddad fled Damascus in 2015, leaving behind a wife and two small children. When Staif left the Middle East in the summer of 2015, he fully expected to be able to soon send for his family. But the German political climate that year shifted. As more and more refugees arrived, family reunification, long a priority for most refugees, suddenly became an ever more distant hope, one without a clear resolution in sight. But keeping Staif from his family, Wahini writes, has made it far harder for him to integrate into German society. And that's a problem for Germany. Wahini, there's a couple questions I want to ask you about this. One is, I want you to give me a brief sketch first of their story. But I also want to know a little bit of backstory. Did you set out to tell a refugee story? Obviously, Germany's role in the refugee crisis, and we are at the moment where there are more displaced people globally than there have been since the Second World War. And of that number, 66 million, I think we are at, almost 6 million are Syrians displaced either internally across the Middle East and, of course, in Europe. And Germany took in almost a million people beginning in 2015 in August of that year when they changed the asylum policy. It used to be that you had to arrive immediately to Germany to apply for asylum, and that changed that summer, which was a bit later than Staff arrived. But I wondered if you set out to Berlin thinking you'd tell a refugee story or, or how you came to this one. And and we'll get into this question of what it meant for families to be divided, because this is the crux of this issue is, is it a human right for families to remain together? And I think you come down on the decision that it is a human right. I do. So I met Steve. I arrived in Berlin in August of last year, August of 2017. And I did set out to write about refugees. I Back home in the U.S., I write a lot about work. Uh, my background is as a business reporter, but then also about politics. I, I have been a political reporter as well. But often my coverage sort of intersects with questions about how marginalized communities or people who are underrepresented um, work, um, what, what their what their place is in the workplace. And, and so I knew that a lot of refugees had arrived in Germany. I, I was interested, I thought, in what it meant for refugees to be sort of integrating into the into, into the economy, how people were starting to continue their educations, how people were starting to get work. And so I arrived in August and I, I was planning to spend several months in Germany. So I knew I had a little, little bit of luxury of time and I spent probably a month and a half just talking to refugees, talking to organizations that work with refugees to understand what the integration looked like. And and as you know, Sarah, because I know you you followed the story as well as a journalist and editor, it's it's been a pretty rocky process. A lot of people have not been able to find work. A lot of people have not been able to continue their education because of various barriers to 
to access. But when I was trying to figure out how best to, to, to write about the difficulties refugees were facing, what surprised me is that number one issue on people's lists of issues that they were facing as refugees was this problem of family reunification, which here in the U.S. I, I, I hadn't heard a lot about. You know, questions about how people continue their education and start to work are questions that are sort of top of mind wherever you, you are. But I actually wasn't all that aware of, of this family reunification problem. The problem being that many people who traveled from Syria to Europe to seek asylum did so at a time when countries had a policy of allowing those kinds of people to then send for their immediate family members. But around 2016, those policies changed. And so Stafe, who you mentioned in your introduction, is a guy in his 30s. He came to Germany in 2015 at a time when that was the case. But then while his application for asylum was being processed, the rules changed and Germany said, well, for certain people who come here seeking asylum and who get a category of protection, we are not going to allow them to, to, to reunite with their families. And then ended up covering a lot of Syrian asylum seekers and Stafe was one of them. And so there are, about, there are thousands of people who are sort of stuck in this position of having come to, to Germany and other European countries at a time when they thought the policy would be one thing and are now, now sort of stuck without their family members for years. For state, it has been three years because the policies have changed. So I'm going to pause you here for a minute and let's go back. So in the story, you talk about how the UN General Assembly actually proclaimed in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948 that the family is, and I'm quoting, the natural and fundamental group unit of society and is entitled to protection by society and the state. And in the years that followed, because of the Holocaust and because of an exodus of people fleeing communist Eastern Europe, you write that this actually kind of morphed later into the Refugee Convention, which accorded refugees both a de clear definition, a person with, quote, a well-founded fear of being persecuted for reasons of race, religion, nationality, membership of a particular social group or political opinion, and protections. And one of those was the unity of the family. And that, that idea that the refugees themselves, and, and you and I have talked about this during the editing process, that obviously the question of family unification has been off and on at the forefront of immigration questions in Europe. It, it was a question for guest workers, as they were called, in the 70s and 80s. It was long debated in political circles, but refugees themselves seemed to actually exist almost outside that conversation. It was almost as though they'd suffered enough that clearly they should be allowed to invite their families in. But what I think you get to in this story, which is important, it's it's not just that the rules change, it's that the political environment changes. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. I mean, you arrived in Germany in the summer of 2017 when actually, for the very first time in decades, the alternative for Germany, a far-right party, was all of a sudden surged in the polls that summer. And it comes in third in the September elections. And they did so on the backs of pretty much an anti-refugee xenophobic strategy. That's exactly right. Yeah. And as you know, this was taking place throughout Europe. It was really um, striking and, and kind of upsetting to me just on a human level to be in Germany in, in the fall of last year and see campaign posters for the, for the alternative for, for Germany, the, the, the right-wing populist party that, that sort of carried these, these explicitly xenophobic messages about, for example, a poster show, showing two women in bikinis on a beach and, and a slogan saying, bikinis, not burkas. These messages were, were really pre prevalent around the time that I was there. Um, and, 
Yeah, it was in response, or I I should say this party's opportunity to to get traction was that they came in the form of of this this large exodus of of people from from Syria and and also Afghanistan and other other troubled countries to places like Germany. So a couple of things happened, I think, one of which is just that the numbers of refugees were were so high, sort of unprecedentedly high since sort of the highest numbers since the post-war period, that there was an impression, a sort of, it was a quantitative fact that there were more people coming in. And that was, I think, uh, alarming to some people in these countries, some members of the population. It also coincided, I think, with a kind of period of of economic unrest where, you know, people's job prospects were less certain in general. Inequality was rising in Europe as it was in the rest of the world. And so there was a sort of confluence of factors, I think, that led people to, to target refugees as a threat rather than a group of people who needed safe harbor, as they'd been thought of, I think, often in the past. And so there was a cultural shift, which led to a political shift, which exactly led, led to the situation in which this right to family unity, which was sort of seen as a, as a given and even codified in, in, in laws in many countries, was, was sort of given another look and, and, and taken apart in many cases. So let's, let's get back to State for a second. How, how did you actually come across him? How did you find him specifically and when you met him, what was his state of mind? I met Stafe through one of his lawyers. So I, when I, when I started to understand that there were so many men, especially men in their twenties and thirties in living in, in Germany who were waiting for their families to come and had no idea when they'd be reunited. And this was sort of the top issue on their minds. I, I circled in on that as as the issue that I wanted wanted to write about because it was the issue that that was top of mind for them, and so I started talk, talking to some of the organizations that are that that were working to to fix this problem or address this challenge for families. And one of them was a human rights legal organization called Human, kind of like startupy ACLU for Germany. And this organization was working mostly with children who had come alone and were seeking to reunite with their with their parents which was also not not a given. So, so there are also many children who are not able to reunite with their parents. But they, had, they were also working with some adults, one of whom was Stafe. And so they put me in touch with Stafe. They described him as a very, um, somebody who was like working pretty doggedly and aggressively to be reunited with his family. A lot of people, I think, understandably feel kind of resigned and withdrawn and are kind of just waiting to see what the government will do. But here was a, here was a guy who they described to me as somebody who was really trying to take charge of the situation to the extent that it was at all possible. Um, and they put me in touch with him. And one of the things that we talk about, you you mentioned at the very beginning of the story is that he leaves behind small daughters. One is six, I think, and one is four at the time that he departs from them. And now it's been three years and three years in the life of a, of a four-year-old is, is enormous. I mean, it means that they yeah. don't know each other. And I think one of the things that you get into, and I think this is really, really important, is how family reunification, it, there are two pieces to it. One is how it benefits the refugee. And and then ultimately, and I guess they're really linked, is that means that the refugee can then benefit the host country that has extended a welcome. Can you kind of tell me a little bit more about that? Yes. What fascinated me about this whole debate that was taking place in Germany and throughout Europe at the time that I was there and that is continuing is that it's been framed as as a matter of 
like weighing something that's good for the refugee, which is to be with his family versus what is perceived as being good for the country and its citizens, which is to close borders and not let more people come, which is, which it turns out is a pretty simplistic and, and somewhat inaccurate way of viewing the situation because research is increasingly showing that actually if you allow families to reunite, it, it has all kinds of benefits for the country and, and in many ways probably is more beneficial to the country than keeping families apart. That was clear in my interactions with Stave. He Back home, he was an electrical engineer, was very successful in his work. His family had, had a decent amount of privilege for, you know, given the circumstances before he left. He left because because they lost his house, they lost their house in in the violence, and and he was having having challenges at, at at work too because of the because of the situation, and so he was forced to leave. And when he arrived in Germany, he had this idea that you know maybe he would continue his career as an electrical engineer and send for his family, and they would continue their life and have have a sort of similarly privileged life in in Germany. That ended up not being the case. And part of the reason he's now working as an electrician at a hotel. And part of the reason he has not been able to sort of pursue, um, you know, the, the education and the career changes he's, he, he, he would need in order to sort of set himself up for success and therefore contribute to, to society through paying taxes and, 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 you know, being in an innovative profession is that he's kind of it, he's sort of stuck in limbo waiting for his family and it's affected him psychologically he feels depressed he can't really get up the energy to you know aggressively continue his job search he feels that he kind of has to stay in in Berlin while he he's waiting for this situation with his family to sort itself out because that's where he's this is taking place administratively and so it's difficult for him to apply for jobs outside of Berlin and so for all kinds of reasons, he's had a hard time continuing his life. And, and he's, and he's actually that, had a number of court setbacks as well. And that's what that you describe. I mean, he's actually gone to court to try to, to sort of sue for this right. And it has not yet worked out. I think that this story, the reason why I just was so glad that we had the chance to run this story is that I feel like it's very easy with these enormous numbers to, to lose really the, the human the human piece. And and the story of this one divided family with this completely uncertain future that has taken on, unfortunately, the the political machinations of Europe right now or and, and really around the world around where we're going and, and what it means to kind of uphold this specific human right, it, it felt to me like a really a really important way to get into this story. I, I thought so too. Yeah. I mean, we, we talk a lot about the numbers and they can be, they can be kind of over overwhelming, right. Contained behind those numbers are, are, are thousands of people like safe and, and his story, I found, found his story really compelling. I mean, he, I, I was thankful for him to thankful to him to, for, for opening up to opening up to me about his difficulties. The, the only connection he has with his family now is, is through WhatsApp messages and talking over the phone. And you're right. They were, you know, they were they were four and six when he left. They're now each three years older. He feels himself losing the connection with his children. Um, I had thought about this when I first got into the story as a matter of like, you know, at some point, surely he'll be able to reconnect with his family. And at that point, all will be well. But he made the point to me that even if his family is able to come now or a year from now, it'll still be half of their young, his children's young lives that he's missed, which is a loss, even if he, even if he does eventually reunite with them. So yeah, it's, um, 
it's a, it's, it's a sad story. And I found it really compelling also. Do you think he still has hope? He is trying to, you know, toward the end of my time in Germany, he would sort of go back and forth when I asked him that question during our last couple of meetings. Sometimes he would say, I should have never, I, sh- I shouldn't have come here. It was a mistake for me to come to Germany. You know, my, my homeland is war-torn, but at least I could have been with my family if I stayed there and maybe I should go back. And then at other times he would say to me, listen, I don't know what other choice I had. You know, he would, he would sort of pray about this and think to himself, well, wait a minute, this, this was my only option for trying to secure a better life for my family. And maybe it will turn out that, that, that it will not have worked out, but at least trying is better than, than my having stayed back home and not having had the chance. So, um, he's, he's really conflicted about the whole thing. Well, Wahini, I'm so glad you wrote this piece for us. Wahini's story is the family feud. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me, Sarah. You've been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm Sarah Wildman, and I've been your host. The podcast is produced by Shelby Bostead. For more information about foreign policy and to subscribe to The ER, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.